Hello and welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. This is Todd, and I'd like to take a moment to introduce this episode, number 19, which was recorded at a mindfulness talk a few months ago. And now I'm publishing it late Saturday night because I know my parents like to listen to these shows on Sunday mornings. So whenever I can get a new one in in time, I I like to do so. And this one is about beauty, and I spend a lot of the beginning part of this talk reflecting on my experiences with music and recording and how perception has changed, how the process has changed. I mentioned some artists, but I I forgot to mention the Grateful Dead, and uh, I wanted to do so here because they really sort of changed the way I thought of what it means to be a touring artist. Like, recordings weren't really that important to them. They saw it as sort of a commercial for the band. So it wasn't something that they were too interested in, why they were so open to freely distributing live recordings. I think Jerry Garcia said something to the effect of, Recording music is like building one of those little ships in a bottle, and the concert experience is like sailing a real ship. Anyways, I think it's a sort of an example of mindfulness, just the present moment is it. This is all that there is. But touring and and performing is kind of a a strange art form when you think about it in comparison to, to others. Like imagine a painter finishing a work of art, and then he or she has to go out every night and recreate it in different cities. Well, anyways, beauty is in the brain of the beholder. And now researchers at Caltech University have recently discovered that certain previously inaccessible regions of our brain can now be electrically stimulated in a safe and non-invasive way to produce a somewhat shocking effect, shocking in quotes, but subjects of this experiment have judged faces to be more attractive than before their brains were electrically stimulated. And it's not too unrealistic to envision a sort of real-life black mirror scenario in which we could receive this simple procedure to increase our attraction to what we ought to find beautiful. So perhaps science will eventually isolate the face of one's spouse in the brain for couples looking to enhance fidelity. And previously we talked about how naturally promiscuous lab voles, voles are a type of rodent, they've already been made to mate for life with their next sexual partner by altering their genetic code so as to increase levels of the hormone vasopressin, which is a social bonding chemical. Additionally, the process for producing beautiful works of art is evolving faster than any one person can make sense of. And uh, in this episode, I talk about artificial intelligence, the art of artificial intelligence, and the timeless wisdom of the Buddhist-influenced and culturally endangered Japanese aesthetic of wabi-sabi. I also want to let you know that I have some events coming up this month and next month on November 27th. I will be doing a free monthly mindfulness meeting at Edward Plainfield, Edward Hospital in Plainfield. It is 24600 West 127th Street. That's Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. If you go into the emergency room entrance, straight downstairs, there's a conference room. That's where we meet. On December 9th, at Yoga Among Friends in Downers Grove. Maureen Muldoon and myself will be hosting our second Howl and Harmony conversation. This is a discussion about sexuality and spirituality in the 21st century and um, healing from shame and speaking truth. This has really been an opportunity for me to go outside of my circle of competence and really learn more. So you're invited to that. There's a monthly mindfulness process group that I do at Oswego Wellness on the fourth Thursday of each month in Oswego, Illinois. And since the fourth Thursday is Thanksgiving, that will be held on Thursday, November 29th. 
And for more events, please visit my website, michaeltoddfink.com. I would also appreciate if you find this show valuable to rate it and review it and share it with friends and make sure you subscribe so that you can be notified when new episodes are released. Thank you for your support and now on to the podcast. I said a strangely unprophetic thing about 20 years ago when I had the first CD in my hand that my brother and I had made that I could sell to somebody. He printed out the artwork and everything and we folded it all up and slid it into the, the plastic container. You remember, maybe remember those plastic jewel cases. And when I tried to uh, convince my first buyer he was asking me some questions and, and one of them was, so why are you deciding to do this? I said, and this is the unprophetic <laughs> statement, I said, you can't have too much art. You know, and at that time it was true because uh, up until the 90s, like to have a CD or to have any kind of music, anybody would take it. All I had access to growing up was my parents' collection of vinyl. So. If I could get my hands on anything else, I would, I would gladly take it. And I was, you know, we'd save up money to get the work of art, to get an album. So it seemed to me everybody would always be eager to have another song on their playlist. But that's not so true today, I don't think, with music everywhere, cloud music. Well, it's not as true as it was in that time. But anyway, I'd like to just walk you through this sort of evolution of recording for me and uh, my family. My brother and I started recording on our family reel-to-reel um, that, that my dad had from the 70s. And we still listen to that once in a while and it's so much richer than you can, than you can uh, accomplish with MP3s and a lot of the digital music. So we still think that it has captured so much more of what happened when we recorded it. And, and then I remember in the late 80s getting introduced to a CD for the first time. All of our buddies on the block in Indiana, we got invited over to Ryan's house. Ryan had an older brother and he was gonna show us a compact disc. And I had not even heard of a compact disc. He just said that, that he had the new format and we didn't know there was a new format. So we all got together and we went over to Ryan's house and then his brother invited us to his bedroom and he makes sure we're all like on one side of the room and he's on the other side. He's really proud of this, uh, this disc. And he pulls a box out from under his bed. It's like a locked box, unlocks it, flips it open and he pulls out this big Paula Abdul album and it's, it's a plastic case, and then he opens up, and it was one of the bigger ones. Back then they weren't, they didn't get the size quite right yet. And then he opens it up, and it's like immediately reflecting light, and we're all like, oh, you know, we're looking at it. <laughs> and I, I go out to, to touch it, and he slaps my hand away. <laughs> and he folds it back up. He doesn't even listen to it, he just has it. And he's like, it's called a compact disc. <laughs> And you can't touch it because you get your fingerprints on it. And I'm like, well, then what do you do with it? He's like, it plays music at the highest fidelity, but I don't want to play it because it's going to be a collector's item. So I remember, I remember looking at that CD going, yeah, that is certainly the future. The future is here and there probably will never be anything better than that. Thinking about like big vinyl records and cassette tapes that had worn out and broken down, I was like, that's it. This is the end of the, of the road for the production of music. Until I got to college and, uh, and in college, my, uh, my dorm mate was a computer engineer in the making and um, he explained to me what Napster was. And so I realized that all this music was at my fingertips for the first time in my life. 
And prior to that, I only could access, like I said, what was on my parents' collection, what was in their vinyl collection and cassette collection. Fortunately, it was very large. My dad plays music and my mom's a huge music fan, so we had a large collection. But it wasn't super broad. I mean, it was mostly rock music and classic rock music. And now I was getting introduced to hip hop for the first time and because this guy loved rap music. And I could just start to explore. I mean, of course, it raised some ethical concerns about consuming all this music. And I, d I definitely remember thinking, but it sounds like crap. <laughs> you know, all the MP3s sounded terrible back then. But this was the beginning of getting music smaller and smaller and smaller and, and getting it further and further away from the, from the artist and from the packaging. And I remember being asked after that, do you think this is it? Is this the final stage? And, and that was when I finally could, could see the, the future. I was like, no, there's got to come a point where nobody wants to actually possess the music anymore. So there's got to be a way to get it just out there. And that eventually became cloud, cloud music. So why be encumbered with, with holding on to records or even MP3s on our drives just by a subscription? So anyways, music in that time period evolved so quickly over 30, 40 years. And today it's easier than ever to listen to any song from any time, from anywhere in the world and yet, I find it harder and harder to do so. M meaning, I find it hard to make the time to actually sit down and deeply listen to a song the way that I did as a kid. I mean, I would be at the library for hours. There was even a six-month period where I only listened to one record. That was it. There was an album called Inner Mounting Flame. It's a jazz rock fusion record. I was at dinner with my girlfriend, senior year of college, and she introduced me to a, an avant-garde musician named Louis. And he's asking me about some of these jazz musicians like Ornette Coleman and Sun Ra. And I hadn't heard of, of these artists yet. And the way he was talking about them and praising them so highly for their exploration, I was like, gosh, I'm really, I'm really limited in my, my range of knowledge about different styles and different genres. So he said, well, why don't you start out with, because I was a guitar player at the time. He's like, if you really want to get deeper in the guitar, why don't you listen to something from John McLaughlin or Pat Metheny? And um, so I went to a record store and, and I looked at a couple records from both. And there was this one called Inner Mounting Flame and it just had a little candle flame on it. The rest was black. And that one spoke to me for some reason. So I got it and I listened to Intermounting Flame in the basement. It was so psychedelic. But we had this room in the basement. I had this dream that we could get the entire basement covered with pillows <laughs> my senior year. And we got pretty close. So I kept asking somebody, hey, if you have a pillow to spare, lend it to us. I want there to be a place where people can just chill and listen to music. And uh, so I was down there listening to Intermounting Flame and and I listened to that for several months. And then afterwards, I, I moved on to John Coltrane's The Love Supreme. And I listened and I listened and I listened for months, nothing else, just The Love Supreme. And just hearing that rhythm, and just like merging into that sound until I felt like maybe I'm in tune with what Coltrane was experiencing. Coltrane locked himself in the attic to write A Love Supreme and he didn't come down until he had it. And so I thought, you know, I'll spend some time like that in solitude with the record and, and really bury myself in it. Anyways, things have changed a lot for me and I, I, think, I think for everyone because being able to hear music is not so special anymore. To hear music in any way at all was, was pretty powerful. Um, at least in the beginning of my life. Before I was born and before recordings were available, it had to be so miraculous and so savorable to ha have music coming from instruments to your ears, knowing you can't hear it again until you're around live music. And now it's like 
music is everywhere. Like like I was uh, sharing that David Byrne quote, um, it's it's ubiquitous, and silence is what people pay for and savor because you can't get away from music. So I'm I found now that the work that I do is to tune out the music that's playing so that I can pay attention to other things because music's playing in every lobby, every restaurant, every store, and, um, and in my friends' cars and everywhere and in homes. And to, to just be bombarded with that all the time is almost chaotic. And silence ends up sounding so unique. Also, I find that the way people listen to music is, is with a lot of attention deficit. I mean, many songs go out and people don't even know who the artist is because it's just, it just doesn't matter. And certainly the whole album doesn't matter for most people. And yes, like there's been a, there's a little revival once in a while with records, but it's just, it's just a little passing fad, I think, because you can't take your records everywhere with you. So it's, it's like, only when people make time to sit down in a, in a record space. For a while at my home, we, we got rid of the television in 2005 and we replaced it with a record player. And for about 10 years, the, the TV room was just the record room. And that was nice for a while, but now there's a TV in there again. I mean, it's just hard to, to make time for listening to a whole album. But you probably remember the album was also part of the experience, like seeing what was going to be on the cover, what was going to be in the liner notes, who's playing on what, what messages and, uh, and hidden things could be found in the actual holding of, of the package. All that's changed, and I think there's a parallel with that in other types of art and what we find beautiful. I can only speak more deeply about music because that's been a part of my career. But I see it also with photography. Our first photographer who, who toured with us years ago only shot with film. And um, we thought that was pretty cool that all of, all of our photos from the tour had to be developed. And um, eventually, you know, that just didn't make sense anymore. But everybody can take a photo now with their phone and everybody can take a video with their phone and things are getting easier and easier and more and more accessible. So we see that it's changing. And when I think about how recording music has changed and altered the experience of what we find beautiful in music, I see that, like when I talk with my brother about this, that we were on board with this years ago, this, this train that was leading to what I put in the description, the AI art in music and in paintings and so on. And like my brother was saying, like, yeah, you know, when, when you have all of this uh, computer-based music, it's sort of, it, it might be missing some of the soul. And I said, didn't we edit out the soul long ago? Or we've been editing out soul for 30, 40 years at least. And it, specifically in things like quantizing of beats, quantization in music means the alignment of intervals to be perfect. So a drummer who's been playing with time his whole life still can't really tell you when like 10 seconds pass with deep accuracy, certainly not a minute, a minute or so. And when you expand that to an entire group of people, well, you get an ebb and flow around time that's human. And some of it is, some of it is sort of unique or artistic or feels right for that to be a little bit um, off, but but there comes a point where it's too off and it just sounds like the band is not tight or the performance is not tight. So when we talk about a group of musicians sounding tight, it means that they're in alignment with their perception of the passage of time. And you could solve all that with with computer programs, which would just take the notes that were played and they would line them up exactly in time. And we liked the sound of it. Everybody liked the sound of it. And we started to use it eventually. Maybe not till like our fourth record did we really start to quantize beats. And I heard it all the time in, in other 
and other groups like the Red Hot Chili Peppers were quantizing beats and I think of them as a band. And they have instruments on their records that they don't have live. And then we had synthesized sounds and MIDI sounds which, were, which are digital interfaces of instruments produced by sequences on computers. And as soon as we started using that and finding that to be more accurate and effective, we were on a path towards editing out the musicians themselves. Today, very few things are probably actually played by anybody in terms of producing music because we have samples of everything and we have the technology to make it sound however we want, however long or short, and it can all be programmed. So there are many artists, especially in EDM, electronic music, dance music, where nobody plays anything. It's just all computer generated. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's different than what it was. This is how beauty and music is evolving. And it's been happening for a long time. So the musicians were editing themselves out of the equation long, long back when we introduced all these programs. The interesting thing about computer-generated music and taking over that process is that computers were actually created by an instrument. An instrument in China, I can't remember what it's called, gave scientists the clue of how to use binary code to create, to create computers. And then the computers ultimately started to create the music. And so today we have uh, an, an interesting thing happening in, in classical music. There's a composer named David Cope who uh, was highly regarded as, as an artist in the second half of the 20th century. He had reviews that described him as one of the most prolific and important composers of the last few decades. And he created a program called Experiments in Musical Intelligence. And he fed this software program all the pieces of Bach. And then it used an algorithm to produce new pieces of music like Bach, but totally original. Then a pianist took one of those pieces and played that piece alongside one of Bach's actual pieces. And the audience thought that the Emmy piece, EMI, it was called Emmy, that Emmy's music was more Bach than Bach's music. <laughs> so they thought, the audience thought that the computer generated music sounded more human. And it was tested again. And then eventually Emmy was programmed to write symphonies and had Mozart and Beethoven and Bach and, and Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff all on all their compositions loaded into the software and then algorithms would assess all the movements, all the changes, all the intervals and in four hours Emmy produced 1500 symphonies. According to the audiences they were exquisite and audiences gave reviews with words like inspiring and soulful. So what does this mean? It, you know, we, we would think that, well, there has to be a human behind it for it to be beautiful because the human has the emotional experience and the human is using the art to convey the experience and that's what beauty is, right? But even for the human to create the work of art, don't we have to perform some algorithmic task in our brain I only know what I've been exposed to. I mean, I write three, four minute songs, not because I'm the first to think of the idea of a song could be three or four minutes. That already existed. I play a guitar not because I'm the first one to play a guitar or a banjo or whatever, but because I saw it, it got uploaded, you know, into my brain. And I remember one night I had a dream and I went to a symphony and there was around 70 musicians and they were playing a symphony I never heard before. What if I could have remembered it accurately and could have transcribed it all? Would it be my symphony? <laughs> but I would have put no work into it. It would have just spat out from my subconscious. Well, many of our songs, both the ones I've written and the ones my brother have written, have come directly from dreams. My brother woke up one morning and just grabbed the guitar and said, here's what you were singing in my dream. And so he said, so I'll take co-credit <laughs> yeah. 
for it. I'll give the rest of the credit to you. And when he played it for me, it's, I was like, that sounds like something I would write. And just like people were saying, you know, that sounds like that's got to be Bach. So in a way, like Stravinsky said, um, the artist is just refitting old ships. So that a computer could do it isn't really so, so crazy. But what is beauty then? You know, there's this idea that beauty is something so personal and something that we can choose, that we actually decide what matters to me in art. But the new neuroimaging shows that there's not a separate place for aesthetics from, say, um, objects that create pleasure because we need them to survive. So there's not a different part of the brain that's going to light up when you look at a cake, piece of cake, and go, ah, yeah, I want that. And when you look at you know, a beautiful painting or you listen to a piece of music that moves you. So somewhere along the way, aesthetic appreciation had something to do with survival. And maybe that's why we like certain landscapes. It communicates something about there being resources there. There's water there, there's food there, there's ve vegetation there. And, and we find this also with human beings, that the, what we find beautiful or what people have uh, talked about as beautiful or been attracted to is probably something genetically coded, something that communicates health, the low probability of disease and fertility. So we've evolved to, to be attracted to certain features and now it's sort of intermingled with the idea that we could choose what's beautiful, but in the brain it's, it's all there. Beauty is like a transcendent experience. It's an altered state of consciousness. But, um, but I also know that, that those mechanisms also need to be built in to attract us towards a certain kind of experience so that we'll do certain things to survive. And I, I mentioned this to a lot of people lately, but almost everything we do comes out of a place of dissatisfaction. I adjust myself in my seat because I'm uncomfortable. I phone a friend because I think that might improve my experience. And, you know, we, we feel hunger and we eat. I mean, if we didn't have the, this need for something more beautiful to come, we might just be doing nothing and, and then we would you know, be, be eliminated. So, so part of it is a program, I, I would say, that's not meant to be totally disturbing, but um, I think it can help us sort of step back and sort of watch this process. The danger, I think, with the growing ideas about what's perfect is that those things aren't needed anymore to survive. But there are certain definitions or parameters of, of beauty that I think is unhealthy. Like, I saw an ad in um, a magazine it was in a parent magazine that was geared toward children and, and it was an ad for plastic surgery for ears for kids who felt like their ears were maybe getting them bullied. And it said something like, are your ears drawing too much attention and, and leading to being bullied at school? Well, it's not too soon to do something about that. Call this number and get a free consult for plastic surgery. We can reshape your ears and make them beautiful and then you won't have to be bullied anymore or something like that. And I felt kind of uh, angry about it, but, um, but I had to think about that for a minute. You know, I wish it said something like, have you tried therapy? <laughs> <You know? laughs> have you tried talking to somebody? Have you told the teacher yet? <laughs> you know, have you had a meeting with the, the school social workers? Yeah. Well, that's the problem with it, is how long will that definition of beauty hold up before you got to get your ears elongated to fit with, with the changing uh, ideals of beauty? And, and so this leads to some real ethical concerns. So I've talked about the evolution of how we make beautiful things, but it's, it's coming back to the human being, how we create a human. 
And we all know that there's plastic surgery and, and many, many people will, will use it for different things to build confidence. And I don't think there's anything wrong with having more confidence, but I think we need to have some serious conversations as a society about what is beautiful and how do we take care of ourselves. We already know that you can genetically modify food and animals make as many wings as we can fit on this bird so that we can get more wings out and faster. And that no longer is super disturbing. I mean, it should be, but it's just done and people, the demand is there. It's not so much that it's the producer's fault, it's that the demand is asking for it and they're just responding. I mean, that's how a, a capitalist society works. People are all saying, we want it, we want it, we want it. So entrepreneurs step in and say, okay, then we'll give it to you. And, and that's happened with food. Obviously now we can produce all this food and we can get food everywhere quickly. It's the technology is there, the nanotechnology is there to manipulate human genes. So nanotechnology means um, this microscopic manipulation of atoms and molecules. A, a nanometer is like less than one millionth of a meter. If, if you took a nanometer and enlarged it to the size of a marble, then a meter would be the size of, an, of the earth. And so that's how small it is and how fine the instruments have to be to make changes on that level. But you could imagine a scenario where there's a choice when, when a mother is pregnant, there's a choice to manipulate something, or maybe before, before a woman is pregnant, but there's a choice to eliminate something undesired, some kind of disability or handicap. And you can imagine that if you had access to that, you might think, well, I don't want my child to have any risk of that disability. And if it's affordable, you might do it. But where does it stop in terms of building a beautiful baby? <laughs> and let's say we decide as Americans, like, um, we don't want to play God in that way, so it's going, it's going to be against the law to totally manipulate, or totally edit the genes of a child. But what if China doesn't have those same moral reservations and they introduce the first 10,000 super intelligent and super beautiful human beings? Then we may be forced to remove that ban. And, and um, so I was listening to one author really expound upon some of these ethical concerns. And the, the book that uh, is worth checking out is called 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. So we have to think as a society about some of these things. And I don't know what the answers are, but I think by meditating and practicing mindfulness, we can start to think about how to deal with these questions because we're not very good at dealing with exponentiality. And we're just 10 years into the smartphone and things are just taking off. And it's difficult to see how they're gonna take off because it's not built into our algorithms. And I was just talking with um, a retirement community before I came here, I had a talk at a senior living center in Naperville. A resident told me, I think that our lifetime, his lifetime, the way of life has changed more than from Christ till now. From Christ till now, the amount of change in the way a human would go about their day and the, the way my life has changed from when I was born till today, I think is comparable. And so I, I say to people that I think right now, and every generation has probably felt this, but I think right now is the most important time in history because it's a very good time for most of us. We can, we can certainly look back and say things are easier. I don't have to build my own fire. I don't even have to make my own food ever again. And I could have decent meals without ever making them. I mean, I couldn't imagine getting the things I can easily get now. I mean, the only way I could eat going out to eat was just ordering a burger minus the burger. And that, that was my only choice. 20 years ago, when I was just experimenting with eating more vegetation than animals, things have changed so rapidly, but things are good.
But we're very clear now that there really is such thing as climate change. Everybody's in agreement in the, in the scientific community. And we're not sure what the condition of the earth is going to be in just 10, 20 years. We're already at dangerous levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There are regions where it's already beyond safe. That's why they're selling bottled air in Beijing from Canada. And it's, it sounds totally ridiculous. If you said that years ago, like people will buy air, it, just like they thought it'd be ridiculous to buy water, but now people buy air because it's so polluted there. Things may not stay good, that's the whole point. And in this one lifetime, we're trying to figure out where it's gonna go. And if you think of all the previous eras, like this gentleman told me this morning, the way of life didn't really change as dramatically. Now, of course, if you were in war or you were in some kind of trauma or some kind of natural disaster, yes, life for you would change, but that doesn't mean that how people lived dramatically changed. Anyone, any one person's life or any group of people's lives can change from a disaster. But how people lived didn't change so dramatically. And the gap between those who won the lottery of birth and those who did not was wide, but not nearly as wide as it is now. And we can't even fathom how wide it is because the elite group is so small and so far removed from everybody else. I mean, as well as Marie Antoinette and Louis could have lived before the French Revolution, was only so different from the way the, the, the common people were living. The problem there was the common people didn't have enough to live. They didn't have enough food. Now that we have enough food, we're led to believe that everything is fine. You, you have, your life is so much better, our life is so much better than previous generations. So we really don't have a right to complain so much. But the problem is that the gap is so wide and if we threw out all the previous eras and we just looked at how we're doing business today, people wouldn't feel good about that gap. Like for instance, eight people, the richest eight people have more wealth than the bottom half of the human race. The richest eight. If you increase that to 100, the, the richest 100 people have more wealth than almost 5 billion people combined. What's going to happen? At what point is, is this economic disparity going to be blaring in our faces? I think it's going to be when people like Musk build a community on Mars because the planet's getting so destroyed that the billionaire class will be able to go over to Mars, but only the billionaire class. And when people start getting on pods and going over to Mars because you can't breathe here anymore, and we're like, well, wait a minute, how do we get over there? Well, you can't because it costs a billion dollars to get a ride over. Then it will be so evident that there was this, this great gap. And people will be born over there and they'll be told a story about how there used to be a previous planet. <laughs> and, and then people came over from this distant planet and they populated this, this planet. So we're descendants of earth beings and yes we're then then they could create some sort of scientology <laughs> and it would be true so we would be in a real sci-fi dystopian nightmare but anyways so there's a lot a lot to think about with with this and we're not so far off from from these questions and though the ai is, is taking jobs and i used to think it will never take my artistic job because Computers can't create art. Well, turns out they can. And it's not just music, it's not just photography. I told you about the painting. There will be an auction in October 2018 for a series of paintings that were generated by an algorithm that analyzed 400 years of paintings and produced original works. And they're gonna sell for more than $10,000 because they still give the feeling that people want. The composer created Emmy, and another uh, scientist uploaded all these Japanese haikus into a software program, and then it printed whole new poems 
And then when people were, were introduced to, the, to this poetry, they couldn't tell the difference. And they found the computer-generated haikus to be more pleasing, more philosophic, philosophically deep than the human-generated ones. So I may be out of a job. I already feel when I make a record, like when we talk about making a new record, it's just more for like myself and my community. It's like writing in a journal. But the commercial aspect of music for me has become like selling water by a river. You know? And I mean, I'll still do it. I, I, think, I think I'll make some more records, but it'll be for different reasons than in the past and with a different attitude, I think. And, and so we don't need to be worried so much, I think, about keeping jobs, protecting jobs. We gotta be worried about protecting people. As these uh, technological innovations create such wide gaps between the rich and everyone else, we need to be talking about how to protect the welfare of all people. Because I don't think deep down what people really want is to be able to do the job that they wouldn't do if they weren't paid. And we have to find a way to break free of the idea that a human being's value is dependent on what some other human being will pay them. I mean, this creates so, so many types of mental illness anyway, that how much I'm going to be paid for what I can contribute to, to society determines whether or not I'm valuable. And that's just an outdated idea, I think. We know how to be happy. We know something about psychological well-being. What we have to share with people and teach as this transition takes place is the truth, that even if there's something like universal basic income, even if there's no more jobs because computers can do everything, then that doesn't mean that you do nothing and you'll be happy. If you do nothing, you're gonna be sedentary and your health is gonna be poor. And we know that if you meditate, if you practice mindfulness, if, if you create, if you make art and you find meaningful things to do with your life and you live an ethical life, when you combine that, you'll have psychological well-being. So our mandate, I think, is to share that wisdom, to help spread that wisdom about how to be happy. I don't need to be working at a job that I don't want to do to find meaning in life. And if we can all make that transition where you can spend the majority of your life doing what is meaningful to you, whether that's exploring nature, whether that's meditating, whether that is just painting or photographing or finding your own beauty in the world, I don't mind leaving that kind of world to children if I have children. I don't mind sacrificing and working for 40 years and doing things that I probably wouldn't have done if I wasn't paid, if they can have that with the knowledge of how to be happy. I mean, my dad didn't want me to work in one place for 40 years. My dad didn't want me to have to work. He wanted me to be able to create music and he, and he, he wants me to be able to do the podcast and to, to talk to you and to travel and to share things. I mean, my family, fortunately, was always in favor of me being creative over making money. And even to the point where they would sacrifice more when I was younger so that I could do that. So I have it already taught to me that I don't mind, I don't mind if the next generation doesn't have to work as hard. But what they need to know is that if you just don't work or don't do anything, you're not gonna be happy. People aren't happy doing nothing. So they need to have the education along with it. And we can make this change. I mean, we, we've already done it. I, I guarantee that if we went back in time when the autom automobile was being introduced, once it was finally available to the common people, surely people were saying, I'll never give up my horse. <laughs> I'll never stop riding my horse. When I talk about self-driving cars, people tell me all the time, well, I love to drive. I'm never gonna let that. I'm like, do you love to drive? 
or do you like the idea of the open road? Because it sure looks like people like to text and listen to the radio and, and daydream and forget where they're going and all kinds of, of really risky behaviors while driving. All while saying, I love driving. <laughs> you know? I really do believe that as soon as it is realistically possible to take a nap in your car and be safer than if you were awake at the wheel, people will want it. And, and maybe we're not going to even have to pay for these cars. Why? Because if, if you don't have to drive the car, then corporations can market to you in the car. Now that you're not driving, you can be advertised to. And what better way to figure out what you're in the market for than knowing everywhere your smart car goes. So if Google can sell $40,000 of advertising to your car, you know, coming up on the monitor, a sound going, by the way, Starbucks is five blocks ahead. You normally get a latte at this time. Should we stop? <laughs> yeah. Sh shall we put the order in? You know, and if they can sell $40,000 worth of that advertising and it costs $5,000 to get you the car, you're not going to have to buy a car. Just like we don't have to pay for Facebook or Instagram. Why do we not have to pay for these social media apps that people spend all of their time on? Because we're not the customer. We're the product. The advertiser is the customer. What we do and our attention is what is sold. I can give you five hours of Todd's attention per day. What's that worth to you? And when you add that up, personal, that's billions of dollars. So yeah, no, you don't have to buy it, and we won't have to buy the self-driving car in the future. There probably won't even be your own car. There will just be a car that comes every time you need a car. I'm gonna transition now to how we appreciate things, and what about how we appreciate beauty could be sustainable, even though it's endangered, because I mentioned endangered aesthetics. In Japan, um, an interesting aesthetic philosophy developed around the Middle Ages called wabi-sabi. And um, it's born out of Zen Buddhism. When Zen traveled from China to Japan and supplanted to some extent some of the Shinto rituals, um, this concept of wabi-sabi was born basically in the tea ceremony. Up until that point, what was popular in the Japanese tea ceremonies was to import perfect um, utensils from China. And it got more and more opulent until some Zen monks introduced something more simple. And the cups no longer needed to be made of gold, and they didn't need to be perfectly round even. When they made them, they were just roundish. And if there was like a blemish on it, and the instinct of the aristocrats might be to throw it out, the, the Zen monks would say, no, 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 that's one of a kind. You can never achieve that ever again. And so it's rare and beautiful. Can't you see the beauty in that? And originally, Wabi meant um, the loneliness of living in nature and it had a negative, sort of negative connotation about being disconnected from people and the, the, the sort of dog-eat-dog uh, -dog world of, of nature, the survival of the fittest and how harsh those conditions are. And sabi meant chill, withered, and, or lean. And they evolved to be something akin to what we think of as rustic in the West and how we value certain rustic things, but there's no translation for wabi-sabi. In a movie, Harold and Maude, they mention wabi-sabi when they're looking at a building. Anybody remember Harold and Maude? Okay. 
And then I had the, when, when Norm from my band said that they, they talk about it in Harold and Maude, and I had the realization, Harold is Wabi and Maude is Sabi. <laughs> Harold wants to, to kill himself because he can't fit into society, he feels so disconnected and, and he is miserable. And Maude is chill and withered and lean and together they're wabi-sabi, and there's a sort of aesthetic to their uh, about their odd relationship. Um, anyways, so wabi-sabi evolved to embrace three three qualities that are essential qualities of Zen Buddhism. One is that nothing lasts, impermanence. So they said the Zen practitioners of this tea ceremony thought that the closer things were to nothingness or this foundation of Buddhism, emptiness, things are born out of emptiness, they come into being and they go back to nothingness. And at the edge is where you get the most exquisite beauty. And if we think about that for a moment, when a baby is born, everybody is immersed in the the majesty of new life for a while. It's just like, oh, it's a baby. And um, when a new work is produced, like when our album came out, so many of us got together at Lincoln Hall and we all celebrated. And then, you know, then it, we go back to normal life and um, it's not such a big deal anymore that there's a new album. But at the time of release, it's a big deal. And when I was growing up, it was a big deal. Like I would be counting down the days until this thing comes into existence. Um, and also for the wabi-sabi practitioners in Japan, but not so much for us, there is exquisite beauty at the end of impermanence. So this is partly why the Japanese elders are so revered, because they are the embodiment of wabi-sabi. The lines, the age marks, the, the shaping of nature is part of the aesthetic. And so they're sought out, they're the embodiments of wisdom, and it probably is contributing to the longevity that Japanese people enjoy, because it's something to look forward to. This is the most exquisite period, but you have to slow down and pay attention to see it in yourself and in others. It's sort of like at the event horizon of a black hole, if you were watching something enter into the, that abyss, it would take thousands of years for you to see it go all the way in. But for the person entering into the black hole, it would just be really quick before they get torn apart. But time would dilate so much, you could watch them for almost eternity. And that is the kind of awareness that the mindfulness practitioner needs to bring to those last moments. And I tried to do that in the few times of my life where I got to sit next to somebody in the last breaths, to just immerse myself in that transition. And I, I, I found it really captivating and really beautiful. Um, so that's the first one. The second one, incompleteness. Nothing is complete. So an instrument today that was made in the 40s might be considered, or, or pre-war, might be considered very valuable because it's vintage. And it's shaped by time and by nature. It's not just what is brand new and in mint condition right now is more valuable than what's old. So we already have this aesthetic built into our culture to some extent when, when things are made to look vintage some things are made new to look vintage because we have some appreciation for how time and nature weathers things. Um, but everything that we do is incomplete. And I think of this story that I was reminded of by another resident earlier today. When I was talking about incompleteness and wabi-sabi to the, to the seniors, one said to me, well, isn't it just kind of like gratitude then? And I said, you know, it really is just like gratitude. And I'll tell you a quick story to illustrate this idea of incompleteness and gratitude. There was a king who had a minister, and this is a story about where the expression, thank God, came from. 
And this minister coined the words, thank God or thank goodness, because he had immense capacity for appreciation. He could see what was good in almost every circumstance, and so he offered this saying. And um, even when he was sick or something unpleasant happened, he would offer gratitude. He'd say, like, thank God I got sick because I was feeling pretty proud of my health. And the king and everybody loved the minister. Well, one day the king and his minister went hunting deep in the jungle with a bow and arrow. And when the king spots a deer, he pulls an arrow out of his quiver and he lines it up. And before he fires, one of the feathers cuts his hand and he starts to bleed. So he drops the bow and arrow and he's mumbling in pain. And the minister looks on and he offers gratitude for what just transpired. And the king looks over at him like, what? <laughs> and he says, you know, I'm getting a little tired of your gratitude business. And um, especially somebody who's going to celebrate my pain. Your job is to keep me healthy and safe. So you shouldn't be happy about this injury. And he's working himself up into anger and then his anger works up into a rage. And finally he decides he's done with this minister and he takes his bow and he hits him over the head, knocks him unconscious and drags him over to a tree, ties him up and leaves him for dead. Then he's making his way back to the palace and now he's alone, now he's wabi and uh, no royal attendant. And in that part of the jungle, there was a group of tribal people that perform human sacrifices. And it was that time of the month for their human sacrifice. So they see the king and they see his bling. So they think this would be a perfect offering to their God. And they ambush him and they tie the king's wrists and they tie his ankles and they put him on a post and they march him into their little village. And then they set him down in the middle and they start to build a ceremonial fire. And the king's hanging there like a rotisserie chicken and he sort of gets a sense of what's going on. And they're waiting for the priest to come and prepare the ceremony. So then finally the priest arrives and he has a long headdress and he has all kinds of paint on his face. And he looks really scary to the king. And his first duty is to inspect the offering. So he starts to scan the body of the king looking at all of his skin to assess the health. He has to be in perfect health. When he comes to the hand and he sees all this dried blood and then he finds the wound from the arrow, the priest decides it's no good, it's not a good fit. So he looks at the people and he gives a signal to call it off and cut him down and let him go. And when the king is freed, he looks at his hand and he says, thank God I cut my hand on that arrow. When he says that, he remembers that's actually what my minister said. So he feels remorse and he makes his way back to his advisor, his top advisor, only to find him sitting peacefully tied to a tree. And he starts to untie him and he's begging his apology. He says, you know, my anger got the best of me. I'm really sorry. I hope you can forgive me and I hope we can move on but you'll never believe what happened to me. And he tells the story of how he narrowly avoided death. And, uh, and he says, so, you know, you were right. Thank God I cut my hand and uh, I, I have a new appreciation of your wisdom. So can you forgive me? And can we put this behind us? And the minister says, sure. I mean, thank God you hit me over the head and tied me to this tree. Had I been with you, <laughs> they surely would have sacrificed me. So the point of this story, I think, is that you can't really extrapolate one event from another. But if you have the awareness of a wabi-sabi master, you can see how everything is like a tapestry. And if you tug on one thread, you pull on the whole thing. So you're better off being non-attached to what's happening. Don't get attached to forms. 
We have arbitrary points where we say it is finished, but those are just illusions. There's always another chapter to be written. Sometimes art and film depict this. I like when movies once in a while will continue on long after the point where you feel like, oh, still going, <laughs> you know, no, that wasn't the end. Like Three Billboards is like that if you saw that newer movie. It's like there are many points where it's like it could be over now, but that's not how life works, right? So I think it's kind of neat. And um, art is the same way. We offer our piece and then nature continues to shape it. And when I was in Freeport months back, I saw some old buildings that were vibrant with life and customers and people, and now they've been abandoned for decades. And nature is growing through it, and kids have painted on it and broken the windows. And I look at it, and I don't just feel nostalgia for what it used to be. I look at it and I really see it's something different now. It's not finished. And some of these structures are at the brink of collapse. And you, you'll notice this if you're driving out in the country and you see a barn that's like a, just a breeze away from being flattened. And there's something so strangely beautiful. If you want to develop this aesthetic, this Japanese aesthetic, take time to slow down and really notice something that's on the brink of nothingness. And you'll see it's kind of beautiful. And the last quality is imperfection. So the first one was impermanence, the second one is incompleteness, and the third is imperfection, which is what I mentioned in the beginning when they were making the utensils and there were blemishes, they just left them. But the hardest way to apply this aesthetic is to the human being. That the human being has imperfections is hard for the individual to make peace with. Imperfections in our structure in our design, imperfections in our story, imperfections in our past, imperfections in our intelligence and everything about us, all the things that make us uniquely us, people have a hard time accepting, not only in themselves, but in others. And if we could take a wider lens and notice that that's actually what we love about a story about a movie, about a book, about anything really, is that it's not perfect. If you could just tell a perfect story of how everything was good, nobody would be interested in that. But when it comes to us, we have such a hard time allowing any of these pieces to enter into the, the life story. So it's a unique aesthetic imperfection, and when, when you bring it back to things like reshaping our ears and editing our genes and things like that. Maybe this, this old philosophy could be a way of life, could also help us think a little more deeply about these decisions and remember that there is beauty in imperfection. It depends on us. And how I carry my own imperfections will depend on whether or not I can communicate to others that it's beautiful and that I find it beautiful. You know how like when somebody is really comfortable in their own skin, it's beautiful. It's not that we can just say that only this is beautiful. There's something beautiful about a person that can just be with whatever's there, sort of like rocking whatever it is that they've been given. And that's something that we can cultivate in ourselves and with others. And if we remember these three qualities, we can utilize that no matter what changes in the technology, in the society. There's a little parable about imperfection in wabi-sabi lore of two pots, two water pots. And a water bear has long stick with the two pots on each side and every day she goes to the stream to fill them both up with water but one has a crack in it and the other one is perfect and after she makes her way back to the house the cracked pot is half full and the two pots 
start to communicate with each other over time. And the perfect pot is always boasting about its design and teasing the cracked pot. And the cracked pot starts to feel ashamed of itself. And after a couple years of coming back with half as much water as the perfect pot, the cracked pot cracks mentally and tells the water bear how ashamed it is. The cracked pot one day says, you know, I have something to tell you. I'm ashamed of myself. I feel like I've been failing you the last two years. I can only bring half as much water as the other pot. And the water bearer, dismayed at uh, the statement from the pot, and also surprised that a pot can talk, um, <laughs> says, yes, I, I am aware of your flaw, but I find your flaw to be beautiful. And so the next time I carry you back, I want you to pay attention to nature along the way and let me know what you see. So she fills the two pots up again. And on the way back, the cracked pot is looking out and it sees rows and rows of beautiful flowers. And comes back and water bear says, so did you notice anything? He said, yeah, yeah. The, water, the pot says, yeah, there's beautiful flowers. And I do feel a little bit better and I appreciate you trying to cheer me up, but I still feel bad about myself. And the water bearer says, no, you're not getting it. There's flowers along that side because you were watering them with your crack as water exited the pot, your pot. I was able to water seeds. I planted seeds knowing your flaw so that as we walked back, we could continue to uh, nourish those, those plants. And it's because of you that this side is so beautiful. Now you look at the other side, there's no flowers there. So wabi-sabi is about embracing impermanence, incompleteness, and imperfection. Not just in works of art themselves, but in nature and in others, and especially in ourselves. When I was looking at the senior citizens today, I was using that aesthetic to see that there's something really beautiful happening right now with these people and we miss it. We miss it because we think that life has this arc and there's this peak period of beauty. We get really excited in the beginning and then it's a real drag at the end, but it doesn't have to be.